0: Hello, once again. Before we open the Word together this morning, I wanted to give you a quick update on our associate pastor search. Search team has done an excellent job drafting a job description and qualification criteria, which the elders are now reviewing, in hopes that we can get this job officially posted in the early part of this week. So look for that posting to be live on our website in the next couple days, and then feel free to share it far and wide. But most importantly, keep praying for us, uh, that God will bring along just who he wants for this next season in the life of this church that he loves. And thanks to Mark, to Karen, to Anna, to Jenny, and to Chung for the hours that you've already been putting in serving the church on this team. Let's pray. Yeah. Let's it. Up. Let's. They're just getting started. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. May the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Would have been a wild experience, I think, to be on that show, Undercover Boss. You Remember that one? You think you're putting in a day's work alongside a fellow uh, entry-level worker like yourself, and the next day, that same guy who was building widgets next to you is calling you into his office in the C-suite to review the work he saw you do yesterday, because it turns out he's your company's CEO. For some on that show, it turned out really well. They got promotions, raises, recognition. For others, let's to say if they had known that they were working alongside the CEO, they might have put in a different day's work. The story Jesus tells in today's scripture passage has some of that in it. Like a boss challenging employees regarding work ethic on a job site, Jesus challenges us on our treatment of easily overlooked people saying we'll be judged on the basis of whether we cared for them or not. But there are important differences between this parable and what happened in Undercover Boss. One is that instead of Jesus saying, hey, when you had a chance to care for the hungry and the thirsty and the outsider and the poor and the sick and the imprisoned among my brothers and sisters, I was watching you. Instead, he actually says, hey, when you had a chance to care for those folks, yeah, that was me that you had a chance to care for. So this passage challenges us in a surprising way on how we are or aren't ministering to Christ. Would you turn with me to Matthew 25, if you haven't already? We're in Matthew chapter 25. All summer long, we've been in the parables of Jesus. These are stories that use something that we know about to help us understand something that we know less about, namely the kingdom of heaven. We've seen that they tend to be polarizing, as Jesus tells them, simultaneously, Unlocking the mysteries of the kingdom for those with ears to hear while hardening and angering those who aren't willing to hear what Jesus has to say. But today's parable, admittedly, it's questionable whether we should have included this among Jesus' parables. You see this one always listed among Jesus' parables, the sheep and the goats. But in reality, only two of these 16 verses include any sort of analogy. The rest of it is just explaining exactly what will happen upon Christ's return with no other comparisons necessarily involved. That said, it is in our series because it does employ a comparison that makes this parable like. And it falls third in a sequence of parables about Jesus' return. If you scan back in chapter 25, you'll see there's one about virgins. Then there's the one we looked at a few weeks ago about bags of gold. And this third parable in the sequence, that of the sheep and the goats, follows closely on those other two. And provides a sobering window into what will happen when our king returns. So instead of breaking this parable into sections, uh, this one feels like it lends itself to just walking through it as written with pauses for comment. And then by the time we've read the whole thing, the big idea should be pretty evident. We'll close with three questions raised by this story as a whole. So follow along with me. We'll jump right in. Starting with verse 31 of Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... This is Jesus speaking. And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now that I've lived on the North Shore for about 10 years, I've been to a decent number of North Shore funerals. And if I was an alien from another planet, Attending these funerals and listening in. Trying to figure out what do these humans believe happens after death. Here's what I would report back to the ship. It seems that these humans believe in a place called heaven. And it seems they believe that all you have to do to get to heaven is to die. No? I mean, the grouchiest, meanest people. Not only no interest in religion, seemingly no interest in kindness. You go to their funeral, and it's like, Miss you, Pops. I know you're letting the big man hear it about how your steak should have been a little bit more rare. Is that really what we think? That at death, everyone's just handed an automatic ticket to heaven no matter how they lived here by virtue of the simple fact that they died? When pressed. I bet most of us, even those who are irreligious, wouldn't say yes to that. Deep down, most of us doubt that death could be an automatic, universal ticket to a blissful afterlife. But if not everybody's automatically in, it's uncomfortable to think about that sorting that then somehow must take place. And we especially don't like to picture Jesus doing any of that sort of sorting. Like, Jesus is nice. Jesus is accepting. Jesus is inclusive. We want to picture him being like, hey, listen, you know what? Come on, everybody. I can't stomach the thought of some of you being in others being out. You're all in. Yet that sorting, some in, others out, is just what Jesus claims he'll do. He will separate. And he's not shy about claiming to do so. Oh, by the way, he's talking about himself here when he says the Son of Man. We know that because this whole chapter, the whole two chapters, 24 and 25, are in response, if you look back, to his disciples asking him at the beginning of chapter 4, Hey, Jesus, tell us what it's going to be like at the end of the age when you come back. Jesus says, Okay, let me tell you what it's going to be like when I come back. And he proceeds to give him two two chapters of teaching, chapters 24 and 25, on what it's going to be like when he comes back and how to be prepared for that. So if you just peek back again, chapter 25... The bridegroom coming back in 2510, that was Jesus. The man returning from a journey, 2519, that was Jesus. And now the son of man coming in glory, 2531, that's Jesus too. When Jesus' hearers heard that term, son of man, they would have thought immediately of Daniel 7 from the scriptures they had been raised on. Take a look. It says there, uh, And suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language to serve him. His dominion, the son of man, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Hundreds of years before Jesus, right? So who is this son of man prophesied in Daniel? A king who will reign forever, who rides on the clouds, and God gives him glory? It's a big deal that Jesus frequently uses this title to refer to himself. He's presenting himself as a king. A king who, in the context of Matthew 25, is coming back. King Jesus came the first time to die, but next time he comes to rule and judge. And the sorting that he does is the sorting of a shepherd, apparently. Scholars lack agreement on why shepherds would have separated sheep and goats, possibly because the goats had different sleeping needs than the sheep. But the reason for the shepherds' practices is more or less immaterial to the parable, because the explanation itself makes clear how we're supposed to understand this separation. Let's keep reading on and look at it. Verse 34. Then the king, after the separation, then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. From the foundation of the world. Imagine your king coming back. And he looks right at you. And these are the words you hear come out of his mouth. Inherit the kingdom. That's got to be even better than the entry-level employee who works a week shoulder-to-shoulder with an undercover executive who later says, Hey, you crushed it. Come get your promotion. This is inherit the kingdom. But what was, what was the basis for this sorting, though? For those inheriting the kingdom who inherit the kingdom because sheep and goats can look sort of similar from far away how did the son of man distinguish between the two groups in the first place to make sure sheep were really sheep and goats were really goats let's read on for the evidence that confirms that those in the sheep group were truly sheep and not goats here's what it is for i was hungry and you gave me something to eat i was thirsty and you gave me something to drink I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. So these people over here on the right took care of the king. When he was hungry, thirsty, on the outside, naked, sick, in prison, they took care of him. But they're confused. Because they're not sure they remember any of these interactions that he's referencing. So they answer. Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in? Or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Notice, they're not confused about inheriting the kingdom. right? They don't say, Lord, we thought we had no hope of joining you for eternity. It's not what they're confused about. That part they expected. What they're confused about is that he says they took care of him. They don't even remember having seen him in any of these conditions. When did this happen? And the king will answer them Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh, so when we walked a needy person to a restaurant and sat with them for a meal. When we paid for someone's procedure when insurance wouldn't cover when we took in those folks who needed a warm bed when we took the time to give dignity to the person who was overlooked oh jesus you were saying that we were actually doing all that for you that's crazy now clarification is needed because this is maybe the most debated part of this parable who are the least of these brothers and sisters of mine who's jesus talking about in other words We're doing things for Jesus when we do things for whom, exactly. It's a popular interpretation of this parable today to identify the least of these as those on the margins of society, generally speaking. Like Mother Teresa's famous language of seeing Jesus in the face of the poor, right? She said, in the poor we meet Jesus in his most distressing disguises. If that's what this parable's teaching, the point then is that anyone we see who is hungry, thirsty, poor, homeless, that's the face of Jesus, and to serve them is to serve Jesus. Right or wrong? Whatever truths, or at least partial truths, might be wrapped up in seeing Jesus in the face of the poor, it doesn't actually seem that that's what this parable is saying. See, it's not just the least of these, is it? It's the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And that's just a tick different, right? When Jesus talks about his brothers and sisters in the Gospels, who's he always talking about? what we would call Christians, right? If we can use the term coined later, his brothers and sisters are not everyone in the world generally, but those who belong to him by faith. And so as good and as notable as it is, I mean, as good and as noble as it is, and hear me saying with a bullhorn right now, it is good and noble to demonstrate care for people outside the Christian faith who are hungry and thirsty and naked and homeless and imprisoned. There's a particular emphasis here on care for those in need within the family of faith, which means that the sorting that will happen when Jesus returns isn't based on how one treated marginalized people generally, but rather on how one treated marginalized Christians, at least of these brothers and sisters of mine, see, and maybe to some that seems like an unnecessarily exclusionary point to make. Like, okay, preacher, but isn't God honored when we care for anyone, regardless of their religion? So, why make such a big deal about this distinction? Are you just trying to be mean? And I promise you, I'm not trying to de de incentivize anyone from showing care to non Christians. Let's be known for that, right? But let me tell you what I've seen in seven years now as a pastor we are bombarded with need. Because of information overload today, social media, we are a click away from seeing a million hungry and thirsty and poor imprisoned people. Our inboxes are filled with email listservs that we don't even remember signing up for, pleading with us about all the needs out there in the world that we aren't doing enough to address. What is a Christian to do in an age when we're confronted with way more need than we have the practical ability to do anything about? We have to make choices. We have to prioritize. It's inevitable. We try to help with some needs. We can't do anything to help with others. And so some thinkers have created a category called moral proximity, just meaning that those who are more morally proximate to me, those who are closer to me in some sort of moral sense, I'm more morally responsible for helping. So biblically, what does that mean? Biblically, it means I'm responsible for helping my family members in a way that I'm not necessarily responsible for helping non-family members. I'm responsible for helping my next-door neighbor whose struggles I see in a way that I'm not necessarily responsible for helping some guy on the other side of the world whose struggles I don't naturally see. Here in our parable and elsewhere, we see also that I'm more responsible for helping my fellow Christians than I am for helping those outside the family of faith. How does Galatians 6.10 say it? Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. So, my pastoral concern in spending a few minutes here, kind of in an aside on this distinction, is just, it's just that I hope to alleviate some burdens that maybe weren't put there by God's Spirit. I've personally been crippled by these burdens before. At age 22, I read this quote for the first time. Uh, here it is. When I ask God why all these injustices are allowed to exist in the world, I can feel the Spirit whisper to me, "You tell me why we allow this to happen. You are my body, my hands, my feet." And I remember crying reading that. Right, 22-year-old me was shaken up, racked with guilt, and some of that guilt was good and productive guilt that I needed. It was good for me, right? But then, after like five years with this quote in my head every single day trying to figure out how I could play a part in fighting human trafficking and ending world hunger and translating Bibles for nomadic tribes and adopting all the world's orphans and ending sex slavery, my guilt was just as strong as it ever was before I started helping with any of those things to the point in which it was crippling and unproductive because I couldn't do all of what I was being made to feel guilty about. And do we really think that living that way is pleasing to the Lord? So as much as I really, really, really don't want this morning to supply new excuses for us, like, well, my preacher said we can't help all the poor people in the world, so don't feel bad if you're not helping any of them. Not what I'm trying to do. I do feel a burden to say to anyone who may be weighed down this morning with crippling guilt, to the extent that your guilt is illegitimate, I want to incrementally alleviate that burden by introducing a category of moral proximity, that you're not equally responsible for all the world's needs. One more bit of encouragement that's important for you to hear at this moment. This is a generous church. I wish you could know and hear the stories that I'm privileged to hear about as a pastor of this congregation. I've learned about the man who has every reason to spend his retired days out on the lake, but instead regularly gets meals with overlooked folks in our midst about the couples who seem to always have a room in their homes for someone who needs a place to stay for a season, about the folks quietly making car payments and paying medical bills for others in the congregation. There are many here who are living this out. Of course, that doesn't mean there isn't room to grow. right? And those who have acted in the way Jesus commends in this parable will be stirred up by this parable with new ideas for how to care more for the least of these Christ brothers and sisters. Right now, your head is you, the gears are turning in your brain you're thinking of things you could do to serve those in need not out of guilt but out of a sincere joy and we reflect on the vision here of inheriting the kingdom it makes you pity a little bit those poor folks on the other side who are going to miss out on this doesn't it? but actually it turns out far worse for the group on the left than just missing out on blessing take a look Verse 41, then he will also say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, and to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't take me in. I was naked, and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you didn't take care of me. You might have heard this category uh, talked about as sins of omission, Instead of bad things done, that's sins of commission. Sins of omission are good things left undone. If these people on the left had merely an opportunity, if it was merely an opportunity that they had to feed a hungry Christ, to give drink to a thirsty Christ, to welcome Christ in when he needed to be welcomed in, to clothe a naked Christ, to take care of a sick and imprisoned Christ, if that was merely an opportunity, then their failure to do it wouldn't have been sin. Just a missed opportunity for extra credit. But it must be more than an opportunity, no? Jesus is communicating this is a responsibility that we have. A responsibility that these folks on the left neglected to carry out. We're about to see that like those folks on the right had been confused, those on the left are also confused. Interestingly though, they're not confused about the hellfire. That's not what's surprising to them. But surprising them is the same as what was surprising the first group check out how they ask the exact same question verse 44 and they too those on the left will answer lord when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or without clothes or sick or in prison and not help you they don't remember any such interactions with their lord and at this point we can guess what's coming next then he will answer them truly i tell you whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me they had an obligation to take care of the least of these christ brothers and sisters but since they neglected to fulfill that obligation eternal fire awaits them they'll be experiencing something like what they allowed these others to go through on earth but worse and without end it's eternal right away from the son of man their king and it really Makes not much difference that they call him Lord in verse 44. This is taking place, remember, at the end of the age. At this point, every knee will have bowed and every tongue will have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, according to Philippians 2. Some of that knee bowing that will happen on that day will be voluntary, and other knee bowing will be involuntary. But there won't be any exceptions. The most hardened atheist that you can think of who died shaking his fist at God will one day be on both knees acknowledging Jesus as Lord. Not in an, I'm so sorry, I get it now, sort of way. But by all indications, in a, I hate you, but you're my Lord, and so I have no choice but to bow to you, sort of way. Verse 46. And they'll go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life maybe you've read christian arguments for the case that hell doesn't last forever that one day the torment stops and the person in hell is annihilated ceasing to exist and as much as that might make jesus's teachings on hell a little easier to swallow matthew twenty-five forty-six raises a significant difficulty for that position maybe you've read the argument and yes that greek word eternal can sometimes mean to the end of the age and some have used that to make the case well hell just lasts to the end of the age and then it, it's over but here jesus gives us a parallel using the exact same word for punishment and life right so that we'll know that if heaven lasts forever which as we're certain it does punishment does too I appreciated this sobering quote I came across this week from Jared Wilson. It says the language Jesus uses to describe hell may be symbolic, of course. But the thing about symbols is they have reference. They correspond to real things, and biblical symbols often pale in comparison to the realities to which they point. In other words, when Jesus says there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth in the place of eternal punishment, or we might add hellfire, it's not likely that he means. It will not be so bad as all that more likely he means it'll be much worse so in light of the fact that you and I we are all eternal and that some of us will experience life forever while some people will experience punishment forever and in light of the fact that a basis for that separation will be how we cared for fellow Christians. Our big idea today is this. Because King Jesus is coming back as judge, let's demonstrate our relatedness to him by caring for fellow Christians. Because King Jesus is coming back as judge at an hour we don't know, let's demonstrate our relatedness to him by caring for fellow Christians. I told you we close with three big picture questions raised by this parable as a whole. Ready? Number one. What if I believe in Jesus but don't want to get that serious about my Christianity? Like, to do all this, talked about in this parable, would require kind of a major overhaul of my life. And that doesn't really appeal to me at this point. And I understand that opting out of the whole helping the needy thing might cost me some points with God. I might not quite have the mansion in heaven that somebody else will have, but Sounds like you're talking about the deluxe package of Christianity. I'm happy with just the standard version. Acceptable? I hope we didn't miss in this parable, this isn't extra credit. It's not just that caring for the least of these gets you up to a higher tier of Christian experience. Right? It's a baseline requirement. In fact... We are stealing from the least of these if we don't care for them, because the extra money and time and resources that were given to us were given to us by God to be given to them. Rohan shared this quote with me last week, and it fits again for this passage. This also is theft, John Chrysostom centuries ago said, not to share one's possessions. Perhaps this statement seems surprising to you, but don't be surprised. I beg you to remember this without fail that not to share our own wealth with the poor is theft from the poor and deprivation of their means of life. We do not possess our own wealth, but theirs. In other words, what's called for in today's parable isn't any more optional than the command not to steal. Second question follows closely on that one. So you're saying we get to heaven on the basis of the good we have done? On one hand, there's no escaping that the judgment depicted in this parable is a judgment based on works. We shouldn't be shy about that, even if it makes our Protestant sensibilities a little uncomfortable. But notice a few things if you still have the passage open. A, when was this kingdom prepared for the righteous? Verse 34. From the foundation of the world. In other words... Before the righteous had ever given anybody a sip of water or a set of clothes. True? The good things they did then didn't earn their salvation. God had already written their names in his book and marked out their inheritance by his sheer grace. By no good of their own. That makes the good things they later did then evidence that they truly belong to him. The works confirm, in other words, that they're truly related to Christ by faith. They're not saved by the works, but if they didn't have those works, they wouldn't be saved. See? Notice also, the language here in the parable isn't, hey, uh, those who have done at least 50 of these good acts over here, those with 49 or less over here on this side. That wasn't the basis for the separation. The difference between the two groups is on the level of identity. Like, what kind of person were you? Were you concerned about Christ's brothers and sisters who experienced lack, or were you not concerned about Christ's brothers and sisters who experienced lack? Was your fundamental posture in life, I'm gonna step in and address this need? Or was your fundamental posture that needs for somebody else to take care of? That's the evidence that you belonged to Christ. It's more than just a tally of good works done. It's if you did have a relationship with him, then his spirit would have inevitably reshaped you at the level of your identity such that you didn't just do some sheepy things. You really were a sheep. Third, finally, how does this work out in the suburbs? Familiar with the history, suburbs are a recent creation. I'm about to go American history teacher on you, my first career. The creation of these suburbs where we live was made possible by interstates and was motivated, not entirely but largely, by a desire to separate from people with these sorts of needs. That's just the reality, right? See, life is messy when you're around people who are hungry and thirsty and not well-clothed and homeless and imprisoned. If you can craft a life that's sort of cordoned off from those folks life does tend to be easier more pleasant i don't know how else to say it so not that any of us were consciously thinking this way when we bought our homes in the suburbs but here's part of what makes the suburbs appealing right i didn't run into anybody who fit any of these descriptions today and that made my day less stressful If I was living in the city, I would have seen homeless people, thirsty people, marginalized people. But in my suburban neighborhood, I didn't see anybody like that today. So my conscience was never pricked. I never had to feel guilty about what I was or wasn't doing. It was nice. Friends, what I'm trying to say is it requires extra intentionality up here. To live like sheep and not goats. Perhaps never in human history has it been easier to get through a day feeling unconvicted about our care for the least of these than it is in suburban America today. It's not automatic for us to be confronted with these needs. We have to opt in or else we won't even see them. And that goes for me too, right? If I believe I'm called as a pastor to minister in a place where the least of these are largely hidden from view, I better not use that as justification to say, I'm not called to the least of these. God bless the pastors serving the folks eating at the soup kitchen in Waukegan, but somebody's got to be called to reach those at the country club. Amen? What do you know? i got a tea time to make. Best of luck with your homeless ministry. No. Part of what being a pastor here, part of what a pastor here, I think, is called to do is to mobilize those with a little extra to make good on our obligation to be a blessing to our brothers and sisters who lack our big idea, once again, because King Jesus is coming back as judge, let's demonstrate our relatedness to him by caring for fellow Christians. It's more than just, the boss is going to evaluate you based on how you did when you didn't think he was watching. On closer reflection, it's not undercover boss. It's, it's more than, I saw you when you ignored that poor Christian. It's, I was that poor Christian. All this rests on Christ's stunning choice to identify with us, his people. Instead of saying in this parable, be like me, I'm helping poor people, which would be an appeal to imitation, Jesus makes an appeal to identification. He's saying, I'm so closely identified with the Christian in need that there's a sense in which I am that Christian in need. That was the surprising part of this parable, to both the sheep and to the goats. Wait, King Jesus is that closely identified with his people? That's what surprised the Apostle Paul as well. If you remember back when he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he learned that he hadn't just been persecuting Jesus' church, he had been persecuting Jesus. And thank God, Jesus is that closely identified with us. Amen? It's because of that intimate Identification with us that we can truly be said to have died with Christ when he died on that cross. Three days after speaking this parable, by the way. And we can truly be said to have been raised to new life when he rose from the dead. If you've never experienced relationship with Christ, that's pretty close to the heart of it. That we no longer live, but he lives in us with our destiny now wrapped up in his, his life becoming my life his sufferings becoming my sufferings, his inheritance becoming my inheritance. And I hope that identification encourages you this morning. If you're in a season of need, Christ sees you and we see you. Over the years, this congregation has looked out for countless seminary students, many of whom have come here from faraway places to answer God's call, though they brought with them close to nothing. This congregation has helped many immigrants navigate systems that aren't always particularly user-friendly. This congregation has come alongside those with chronic health issues they couldn't seem to shake. Has helped restore those who have made mistakes that seem to keep hanging over their heads. However you got to your place of need, Christ sees you. And while we as a church family try to have healthy boundaries about it, we want to be those sorts of people to you who minister to you in your moment of need. This parable Makes it crystal clear that, as D.A. Carson puts it, real followers of Jesus will go out of their way to help other followers of Jesus, not least the weakest and most despised of them. Others will have no special inclination along these lines, and that is what separates sheep and goats. So instead of asking ourselves this morning, okay, have I done enough to check the box that I fit the criteria of a sheep and escape the fate of the goats? Instead, let's say something more like this. I am a sheep, not a goat, because I belong to Jesus. How can I live like a sheep today? Let's pray. Lord, in our gratitude for what you did for us in Christ, we want to be those sorts of people. The sorts of people who see you in the least of these, your brothers and sisters. sort of people whose hearts go out To those in need not just with sentiment but loving tangibly and in concrete ways Uh, send your spirit to inspire us to encourage us to give us ideas uh, to give us motivation to go out of our way to help those in need and in doing so help us to show ourselves to be your sheep in jesus name amen We're about to sing a closing song in response to this scripture text, reflecting on the great love God has for us in Christ. But before we do, I wanna provide an opportunity as we do sometimes for sharing here at this mic in front, specifically sharing on this. I'm wondering if there's anybody here this morning who's been convicted in their heart this morning and wants to share with the rest of the church family how you sense God provoking you. What you sense God calling you to do, what sort of practical care for your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need, any of that, right? Um, And, you know, listen, we do this from time to time. Sometimes folks share, sometimes they don't, but we keep making the opportunity available to you because when we look at scripture, we see that early church services were participatory. So even though it's scary and folks don't always take advantage of the opportunity, that's okay. We want to keep offering it. We believe. But these services will be richer if we're not just hearing from the preacher and the singers, but from each other appropriately and in good order. So we'll mute the live stream for confidentiality for a few minutes if anyone wants to avail themselves of the opportunity. Uh, We won't linger here forever, but uh, if anyone has something that you want to share in response to this sermon text about what the Lord is provoking you, that you want to make known to the congregation for our edification and encouragement, uh, now's the time to do so.